From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Proofreading a letter for his aunt sent Tad Kelly on a search into his family's past. And when he learned they'd enslaved people, he was determined to make reparations. It's the legacy of slavery that really forms the foundation of why we have in this country today, particularly the racial wealth gap, which is the source of so much of the difference in opportunity presented to white people versus people of color. Today, reparations become seed money for Black-owned businesses in Colorado. Then, Purplish examines the significance of the Latino vote. It's one thing to know that Latinos are one of Colorado's largest voting blocs, It's another to make your case person by person on not just why they should vote for a candidate, but why they should vote at all. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The reparations discussion has stalled in Congress. That is, some sort of remuneration for the descendants of enslaved people in the U.S. Meanwhile, some Coloradans are proceeding on their own. CPR's Elaine Tassie met Tad Kelly, an affluent white man, who started donating after he learned of an ancestor who'd enslaved more than 100 people on a Missouri plantation. Elaine also met Risa Jones, who received a reparations grant funded by people like Kelly. Jones used the money to keep her tea shop afloat during the pandemic. And Elaine Tassie, our race, diversity and equity reporter, thanks for being with us. Hey, Ryan. Uh, Tell us about what you're calling micro-reparations and more about the people involved. Yeah, I met this tea shop owner who got $8,500 from an organization that receives donations for people negatively impacted by the legacy of slavery. And that money is dispersed through the Denver Foundation. She's one of the first to receive a grant, and now dozens of other small businesses and individuals can apply for reparations grants until mid-October. I was curious to find out more about how the grant had been used. Yeah, and where did you start? So I started by meeting Risa Jones at Teeley's, which is in Denver, in the Five Points area. She'd opened right before the pandemic, but then she had to close down for like six months. So with the help of the reparations grant, she reopened in September of 2020. And inside the tea shop, there's soft jazz playing, there's pictures of her grandmother, and there's a small bookstore in the basement. Having a tea shop... It makes you pay attention to some things that I didn't necessarily (laughs) pay attention to before. So it's fun to, if I see something that feels like it fits, or like that feels like tea, then I'll purchase it. Or sometimes a lot of the collection that we have in the shop comes from customers who say, oh, I I have this set of china, or I have silver, and and would you like it? So we have been the recipients of more tea accoutrements than I ever imagined. And I remember as a kid when we were six, that was the one time my mom would bring us 
hot tea, and you might have a small plate with like crackers if you were sick. And then my grandmother in the summertime would take Lipton tea, and she would do Lipton tea and add orange juice to it. When we opened up this shop, I wanted the tea to be visible so that the cut you you see the colors. So you see the blacks, you see the green teas, you see some blends that have other things in them. Tea clearly means a lot to her. Shutting down during the pandemic must have been hard. Yeah, especially because the shop had not yet begun to make money. So Risa worked three part-time jobs. She worked as a rideshare driver and in retail. And the tea shop didn't qualify for the PPP loans that more established businesses were receiving. And it just so happened that some of the customers were involved in the Denver Black Reparations Council. That organization raises money and it gives it to Black-owned businesses. We actually had people who are now on the council, prior to being on the council, who knew about us because they were customers. So knowing then that the council, council had formed, we were able to apply for the grant. So Risa received the grant around the time that her husband passed away. And that left her as the sole owner. It enabled her to catch up on her lease, and she hired two part-time employees and paid the utility bills. So one person who donates is this man named Tad Kelly. He had learned not too long ago that he is the great-great-great-great-grandson that's four greats, greats, okay, of a 17th-century enslaver on his mother's side, John Doherty. So when Tad Kelly finds out about this, he decides that it's up to people like him to make amends by funding organizations that help people like Risa Jones. Well, tell us more about Tad Kelly. Okay, so Tad Kelly, he's 63 years old. He's white and very well educated. Prep school, Yale, Harvard MBA. He's been married for three decades and his three daughters are all in their 20s. He's lived in Colorado for most of that time and he has a private equity firm. So he was proofreading something for his aunt, and he learned that he was the descendant of an enslaver. Let's hear some of your conversation with him. My aunt was writing up a little bit of a family history and asked me if I would um, read over the document for really grammar and diction, not really for content. And as I was doing that, I came across a one sort of sentence that mentioned that this particular ancestor had owned a plantation and had owned slaves. There was one sentence that mentioned that this particular ancestor, whose name was, went by, uh, it was John Doherty, but he went by Major Doherty because he had been an Indian agent in the opening up of the West. But what caught my eye was that when he retired from that position, the U.S. government, that he built a plantation outside of Liberty, Missouri, and had enslaved, um, uh, my research indicates, upwards of 100 individuals on that plantation. It was sort of a a heart-stopping moment because um, it, well, I just didn't know that part of the family history. And um, when you learn of a fact that, that I consider very, very significant that you've been previously unaware of. It kind of reshapes your perspective on 
your family history and family past, which I'd not, never really been that interested in, to be honest with you. So I just took it upon myself to really to, to find the African-American leaders in Liberty, Missouri, and sort of reach out to them and triangulate and find out about what the whole history was. I'd never been to Liberty, Missouri in my life. So did you actually physically go there? I've been there twice now. So after you spoke to your aunt and she said she didn't know too much, then you planned a trip to Liberty? I did. How much time elapsed between when you had that conversation with your aunt and when you actually showed up there? So it was October of 2019 when I first became aware um, of the history. And then I, it was November of 2021, so two years. I had hired a specialist in, um, in genealogy and specifically specialist in piecing together black family trees. Because one of my interests here was to try and identify the names of some of the people that my ancestor enslaved and their descendants. I was introduced to Sharon Morgan, who founded BlackAncestry.com, and uh, so I engaged with her. So she said to me, you know, if you're serious about this, you got to go there. Um, and um, I, I said to her, I was serious, and I said, you know, would you come with? And she said, absolutely. We went to archives. We, we went around town. We met people in the African-American community that helped put some of the pieces together, some of whom I'm guessing somewhere along the way may actually be related to me. It's a complex mosaic. It's a journey. So when you went to the archives, can you explain exactly what you did once you arrived? The key document is what they call a slave schedule. So in order to, if, if your objective is to try and identify the identities of somebody that was enslaved, you have to go to the slave schedules, which were property schedules. So slaves were considered property, as you know, and they were listed alongside things like furniture and farm animals and so on and so forth. That's the key document that identifies, and they usually use only first names, and they use an age, and they'll have male or female. They'll also list either black or mulatto, but what they don't have is last names. Um, but at least it gives you a starting point from which to depart. And obviously, when someone passes away, right, we all, if we write a will, we have a list of our assets and where we want those assets to go. This would have been part of somebody's will, somebody's assets. And we were missing that document for Major Doherty. So you said that you weren't successful with regard to uncovering that schedule that you were looking for. So what was your next step? We looked for people currently in the community with the last name of Doherty who were African-American. And anywhere prior to that on Ancestry.com, you can also look at the U.S. colored troops, um, their records about colored troops and seeing if you can find someone with the last name Doherty. There are different ways that you triangulate into some of this stuff. So you also go to the 1870 census where African-Americans were included and you look for, let's say 1860, you look for people who have the same first name. Again, you don't have them, the last name of the slave schedules. Uh, you look at the age that they were on the slave schedules and then you add 10 years and you try and find people in the 1870 census who have the same first name are 10 years older, they have the last name Doherty, because Doherty itself is not that unusual a name, you know, you could be barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. 
That was the first trip. You said that you had two trips. When was the second one, and what did you do on the second trip? So right across from the cemetery for white folks in Liberty, Missouri, including my descendants, their graves are there, there was a, a cemetery for enslaved people and descendants of enslaved people, mostly with unmarked graves. They identified over a thousand people that are buried there. And the idea was to try and identify who these people were and then build a memorial dedicated to these people. So that project was underway when I showed up doing, you know, on my own journey. Um, and so I became involved in that and I supported that. And when, when I returned, it was in order to attend that dedication ceremony, which was the day before Juneteenth of this year. They were able to identify two other descendants of individuals from Liberty, Missouri, who had enslaved people in the mid-1800s, and two in addition to myself. And all three of us made financial donations to this. And there's a so I don't know if you call it a plaque, it's more of a piece of pavement, a stone that says that this is a reparative act by these three descendants of people who enslaved. And each of us was asked if we'd be willing to speak at the dedication ceremony. So we did mm -hmm. and talked about the fact that we're descendants and why this is an important memorial, why this is the type of thing that needs to be done all over the country. Was that an emotional experience for you? Absolutely. I mean, I know for a fact that probably several dozen of the people buried in that ceremony are descendants of the individuals that were enslaved by my ancestor. I also know that a number of them are most likely related to me. This is maybe one of the very first times in my life when I've embarked on a journey where I didn't have some pre-identified objective in mind. And so to that extent, it's, it's a little bit frightening and, you know, you're unmoored and you're kind of letting yourself be taken by events and facts and the people that you come up against. So it makes it really interesting and in many cases emotional and destabilizing to some degree. I think I worked through any issues about anger, shame, and guilt pretty quickly. I don't think that's useful because that sort of puts the, the focus on the person feeling those emotions. And that, that would be me. And I don't think that's where this should go. I think if there's an emotion where, where I sort of landed, it's really overwhelming sadness. I think that's really the thing that when I think about this, it's really sadness. You know, once you learn about the history here and some of the facts, I just don't think that you can see the world the same way ever again. And so what were you thinking and feeling as you were speaking at that memorial dedication? I think what I was thinking was that this is history that we're not taught in schools. And it is important that we understand not just slavery, because everybody knows about slavery. It's the legacy of slavery that really forms the foundation of why we have in this country today, particularly the racial wealth gap, which is the source of so much of the difference in opportunity presented to white people versus people of color. 
Tansy, you mentioned he went to a genealogist. Can you tell us about her? Yes. So he went to this genealogist named Sharon Morgan. She's from Mississippi. And she became interested in genealogy after she found out that her great-grandmother had 17 children with the nephew of her enslaver. My goodness. So she could only take on a few projects at one time because of the amount of time and energy that goes into each one. So she said that through her research, she's been able to find a few of Tad's relatives. My goodness. Well, let's listen to some of your conversation with her. So my work with Tad is finding people who were enslaved at Multnomah Plantation in Liberty, Missouri, uh, so that he can engage in reparative acts, whatever those are. So he came from Denver. I came from Mississippi. And we met at the airport, and we had a visit of three days. And what we did was research in the archives and at other local repositories of documents. We went out and visited Fairview Cemetery, which is on the former plantation. And then we had many discussions about what should happen with getting the information and how do we convert that into something that is useful for the Reparative Act. What information were you able to find? Information about enslaved people who were listed on documents that are not were not available online. It was a wonderful repository of things that just weren't available online. Most people think that if you try to do your family research, you can kind of push a button on Ancestry.com and boom, there it is. And that is, that does not work. It especially does not work for people who were enslaved. So you have to dig deeper into these records. So at the archives, that was what we did. We did a tour of the properties that are related to Multnomah. And Captain Dougherty, uh, who was the slave owner and the owner of this property. There are no buildings left there, but we spent several hours with a person who wrote books, two books, about the, the Dougherty history. And he filled us in on things that weren't necessarily in his book because there's a dearth of information about the enslaved people. And so it kind of ranges all over the place. But his plantation was seriously significant. And there's not a lot that is still available because either he didn't keep really good records, or if he did, he, he did not preserve them and put them somewhere so people could find them. When you go out to the cemetery, it is on this raw land where you might break your ankle falling down into a hole because it's not as well kept as it could be. And so that is going to be a very great challenge for the community of people who are trying to restore it. Has he actually identified a living descendant? 
Uh, yeah, we've actually found three of them, and I cannot reveal their names. But yes, we settled on a key person that I found a huge amount of information about. And she was enslaved by the Dougherty family for her entire life. And she married a man who was also enslaved by the person who married the Dougherty daughter. So we traced her children and then their children. Wow. So do you think that there will be somebody who is a descendant from this person who Tad is going to be able to speak with or sit down with? To find a descendant of people who were enslaved, your first action is that you have to be very respectfully asked, would you like to like engage in relationship with me? Because I want to do a healing act and I have information about your family that you may not have. And so, yes, that is what we are working on now. So what are the steps that are going to get you there? Well, the first step is contacting the person and getting them to accept communicating with you. So Tad has reached out, and we are waiting for responses from several people. I gave him a list. Here are three people that you can communicate with. So that's the point where we are now, is being able to establish connection. So they have all said, yes, I would talk to you. So people say that, and then sometimes they drop off the map. And would you be present for that kind of a conversation or no? Normally, no. I do the research work, and then I hand it off to the person who is my client. I will advise them, and I can get involved if I have to, but I try not to because part of the reparation is that this is something that you need to do for yourself. And I don't want to be intrusive in that because that's part of the healing process. It's like you, you need to do certain things that I can't do for you. All right. Back to the owner of the Denver Tea Shop who's benefited from the reparations that Tad and others have made. Did you ask Risa Jones about the application process? Yes. First of all, one of the key questions was, how does the mission of your business fit with the mission of the Reparations Council in terms of the rebuilding, the reestablishing, and the, the development of the business and sustaining, as they say in here, the institutions and traditions that have been destroyed or damaged. Yeah. And so that the Five Points Corridor fit and the, the business as an Afrocentric business fit the mission. How does the Denver Black Reparations Council find the money to give out grants like the one Risa Jones received? And I'll just note, its mission statement says, a reading here, Grants given are focused on rebuilding and sustaining institutions and traditions that were destroyed, damaged, or prevented from thriving as the result of the enslavement of African and African-descendant people. But say more. 
Yeah, so that's what the specifics of the grant are. And here's what Arthur McFarlane II said about what they look for in the application process. He's the chairman of the Denver Black Reparations Council. I think one of the things that's really important for um, folks to do is to really think about what is their place in this conversation about reparations. So in addition to soliciting dollars from individuals, we would like to be able to open up the conversations that would really get people talking about reparations on the same page, going in the same direction about some of the same topics. Um, It's not just about slavery. Some of the things that are our priorities are things like building economic strength and generational wealth, preserving and expanding black history and culture and knowledge. This is not an issue of, strictly speaking, looking backward. Uh, We want to look forward with what we're doing. So what's the timeline for people who want to make reparations like TAD? And and how can people like Risa Jones of Teeley's apply for funds? Well, applications for grants go through the Denver Foundation, and the deadline is October 18th. And that's also where people can direct donations. And then meanwhile, Tad told me that he plans to contribute $10,000 every year to Mm. African-American culture in Liberty, Missouri, in addition to the investment that he made in the memorial itself. Well, thanks for bringing this story to Colorado Matters, Nancy. Thanks for having me on. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassi. Find out how to get involved in local reparations or indeed apply for a grant at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Of all of Colorado's beautiful places, a scene photographed more than most is the Maroon Bells, the pair of purple and white striped 14ers near Aspen. To see them at sunrise, reflected perfectly in Maroon Lake below, is simply stunning. The peaks get their unique color and streaked appearance from mudstone, which can be crumbly and fragile and dangerous to climb. There's a U.S. Forest Service sign at an access trail. It warns, quote, the rock is downsloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills without warning. It goes on to say, expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died here. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance. Words to consider before you climb the Maroon Bells, also known as the Deadly Bells. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Candidates of all stripes are courting the Latino vote in Colorado, but are campaigns and parties forging meaningful connections or just giving lip service? CPR's public affairs team, Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kim, have the latest episode of Purplish. Here's a key statistic about Colorado politics. About one in six eligible voters in the state is Hispanic or Latino, And going into this election, they have a lot of concerns. My main issues are going to be the economy. You know, what is happening with the markets? To me, the most important issues are how we take care of the earth. The infrastructure sucks. Housing market is through the roof. What I'm really interested is having our veterans be able to obtain the benefits that um, they have coming to them. And when it comes to these voters who have been the center of attention for both parties in many ways, there are two really important things to know. 
The first is that this is not some singular monolithic group. I'm very concerned about my Second Amendment rights. I would also like a conversation about gun safety, that there be more gun control. Another thing to note, both political parties, Democrats and Republicans, are doing all they can this fall to win over as many Latino voters as possible knocking on doors, ads, calling voters, and trying to form deeper ties in communities. This center is part of our party's commitment to building relationships with the Hispanic American community and sharing our message of freedom and opportunity. Historically, Latina voters in Colorado have tended to vote for Democrats by fairly wide margins. But this year, Republicans think, or hope, that worries over rising costs could help them peel away some of those votes and in the state's closest races, that can make all the difference. We're going to talk about the Latino vote and why both parties see these voters as crucial for victory this year. But before we get started, you're going to hear me and all of us say this a lot. Latino voters are not a monolith. No ethnic group is. And that's the challenge for campaigns and for conversations like this one how to recognize the commonalities while staying aware of how much diversity of viewpoints there really is. The question is how campaigns are going to try to connect with such a diverse group of voters. It's especially urgent for Republicans. They need to do well with Latino voters, as well as unaffiliated voters, and of course, unaffiliated Latino voters, to make the kind of gains they want to make and take some power back in Colorado this fall. So one thing that speaks to that diversity is just how many different backgrounds Latinos in Colorado have and where they come from. You know, I've interviewed people in Pueblo who, and you know, I just remember this one woman telling me her family had been there for 20 generations. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the experience of a lot of families. You'll hear a phrase that's pretty commonly used in, in Southern Colorado, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Because a lot of those Latino families have been in the area for generations. About 80% of Latinos in Colorado are from the U.S., not from another country, despite the stereotype. And you'll hear all these different identity terms, Latino, Hispanic, Chicano, depending on kind of where people are from and overall, like the culture that they identify with. And I keep coming back to one of the voters I've met in recent weeks who's sort of exactly the type of person both political parties have a hope of swaying. I've always been kind of a bit impartial because both sides can offer, have creative ideas on how to best manage our communities and our government. This is Nico Martinez. He's 32. He lives in Denver. His parents immigrated from Colombia, so he's actually a dual citizen. He's also a small business owner. He has a real estate company and a music production company. I think the most important thing is to find that there's genuine people in our government seats, people that actually give a crap about people's livelihood and understand that it's like from the most quote unquote insignificant or lower paid worker, it's such an essential part of the whole ecosystem uh, that we live in that we need to value every person's work just as much as, as we value the CEO. So from the way he was putting it to you, Benta, he sounds pretty independent, willing to listen to both sides mm -hmm. and concerned, especially about wanting candidates who can understand where people are coming from. He wants somebody who relates to the common person. I do think that's something a lot of voters are looking for, at least from what we've heard especially at a time when personal finances, inflation are such a big concern. Yeah, definitely. And then that was a huge concern for him and pretty much the main issue he's worried about. My main issues are going to be 
the economy, you know, what is happening with the markets uh, specifically in regards to the cost, uh, the, the inflation of, uh, of the cost of goods, of the cost of services, like are wages going to start, you know, are we going to see anything with wages being pushed up um, so that it can kind of level uh, level the playing field again. That's an issue that I know has come up in a lot of surveys of Latino voters. One poll I looked at from Unidos US and uh, Mi Familia Vota, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, they found that inflation, crime and gun violence, and jobs and the economy were the top priorities. And I think that's good news for Republicans. You know, Democrats have been in charge for a few years, and these are the kinds of problems voters tend to blame incumbents for. So I covered a different poll on Latino voters that turned up pretty similar results. Inflation and the economy were a huge concern. Mm. But to go back to Martinez just for a minute, mm -hmm. among his top concerns, he said he's also very aware of how candidates talk about different groups of people, especially immigrants. I mean, I think the only make or break for me is like some is somebody who's um, being very um, sort of narrow minded in terms of the community approach. So if you're not going to be inclusive of, you know, everybody in this country, including minorities, including illegal immigrants or people that are out here trying to work and actually make a living for their families, and you're going to have a narrow mind of like, well, we're only going to go this route and we're only going to help these people. Like that would be my only kind of caveat of like, you know, we, we don't need that kind. We need people with broad mind and like kind of a <laughs> forward thinking mentality. To kind of echo that, I spoke with one Republican Latina who goes out canvassing for candidates, and he said he wished some Republican lawmakers would not speak disparagingly about immigrants. The most well-known example, I think, being former President Trump and how he described people crossing the border, and I'm not mm. going to use the words he used. <laughs> but, you know, I mentioned this because while immigration wasn't a top three issue for Hispanic voters, at least in the poll that I saw, it did make the list for the top three deal breaker issues hmm. that you know, they would not vote for someone who opposes immigration reform or a pathway to citizenship. That's interesting. So it's not the top three thing they necessarily want the person to be talking about, but the way the person talks about it could turn them off. Is that right? Yeah. Or if they're just like against immigration reform or against a pathway to citizenship. That's yeah. Like I mean, yeah. anecdotally, the Latino voters I've been speaking to this election season, people did mention immigration is one of the top issues after the economy. That's not statistically sound, but that's just what I've observed. You definitely hear the candidates trying to tailor a message to that. Barbara Kirkmeyer, the CD8 candidate Republican, was on Colorado Matters recently. And she told Ryan Warner, our colleague, the Biden administration had an open border, that they weren't doing anything on the border. But she tried to temper that by saying we need to have opportunities for dreamers, for people brought to this country as children, saying that that was the promise of America. So you hear both border control and immigration reform, at least in the talking points from some of these candidates. That's exactly what Republican Senate candidate Joe O'Day is also saying, supports providing a pathway for citizenship for dreamers. But he also wants border security, including building a wall. Going back to polling for a minute, another way it suggests that Republicans may have trouble swaying some Latino voters is that when you dig into some of those big concerns like gun violence, it's not how Republicans are talking about crime, you know, as a problem of Democrat run cities. Hmm. It's really the idea that it's too easy to get a gun and that elected officials need to find a way to end school shootings, which I think actually is an issue that might help Democrats. Right. So you're hearing from Hispanic or Latino voters who are concerned about gun violence, which sadly makes sense because in just the last three years, we've seen the Uvalde school shooting where nearly all the children who were murdered were Latino. 
And then the racist massacre at the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, where the shooter targeted Latinos in particular. Exactly. And another issue that is more salient than ever in this election is abortion. And in that same poll I mentioned, 74% of Latino voters in Colorado believe it should remain legal no matter their own personal beliefs on the Hmm. issue. I think that's interesting because I remember meeting a woman who embodied that because she doesn't personally believe in abortion. She wouldn't get an abortion, but she also doesn't want to see the government ban it. So to bring us back to the big picture here, Latinos are the largest non-white voting group in Colorado. And while they've tended to vote by large margins for Democrats in the past, it wouldn't take too many Latino voters filling out their ballots for Republicans to make a big difference in some key races. As we turn toward what the political parties and campaigns are doing this year, it seems like a good time to mention that I met Nico Martinez, the voter we've heard from, at an event with Barbara Kirkmeyer. Andy, you talked about her border policies. Mm -hmm. She's the Republican candidate in Colorado's newest congressional district, that's CD8. Uh And her campaign was hosting a meet and greet in the district. It was at a local business to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. You know, that makes sense. This new district has the largest percentage of Latino voters compared to any other congressional district in the state, almost 39 percent. And it's also the most competitive congressional district seat in the state. The Independent Redistricting Commission, which we love so much to talk about, drew it in this way that it's almost a toss up, maybe favored Republican. It's exactly the kind of race where victory comes down to a few percentage points, which could be who makes the better pitch to Latino or Hispanic voters. Earlier in this episode, we heard some audio from this Hispanic Community Outreach Center, and that's in Thornton. It's part of this national effort that the RNC is doing to open these offices throughout the nation focused on communities of color. Groups are also going directly to voters. You know, there's this Coke-backed group, the Libra Initiative, their national outreach group trying to build Hispanic support for free market policies in particular. Mm -hmm. And they've been door knocking in, you know, the southern part of the 8th Congressional District for Kirkmeyer, who they've endorsed. And Republicans are going to have to work hard in that 8th CD. Mm. The Democratic candidate is a state lawmaker, Yadira Caraveo. She's Latina. She's a pediatrician and a first-generation American, so her parents came to the U.S. from Mexico. If she wins, she would be the state's first Latina in Congress. What makes this area especially interesting is it's not just an area where the Latino population is, is pretty high. It's also where the Latino and Hispanic population is growing. So there's a lot of political mobilization efforts among Latino and Hispanic community leaders in Adams County. To your point, Andy, I actually spoke with one Latina voter who said she actually moved to Adams County because it was a growing place for the Hispanic community. Hmm. She wanted to be with people that looked like her. And she was really excited about the idea of potentially having another Latina in Congress to represent Colorado. So Hmm. there is that. We're also seeing this kind of Latino ground game play out to a certain extent in the Senate race. Both Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day have Spanish language sites. They're putting social media and television ads out in Spanish. Joe O'Day reducirá la inflación y los precios de la gasolina. Asegurará nuestra frontera y protegerá a los soñadores. Basado en el proyecto de ley del senador Bennett, the American Rescue Plan aumentó el crédito tributario por hijos. Estos logros son pruebas. Michael Bennett está de nuestro lado. Soy Michael Bennett. Y apruebo este mensaje. You know, an example of how bullish the O'Day campaign is on appealing to Latino voters, 
O'Day himself thinks he can get up to 60 percent of the Latino vote, hmm. which would be a sea change. Yeah, that seems really optimistic. So how big of a change would that be from recent elections? You know, according to one exit poll analysis I saw from the 2020 Senate race, Democrat John Hickenlooper got over 70 percent of the Latino vote. So he could flip that. I did ask the O'Day campaign you know, where they got that 60% number from, and they pointed to his biography. They think O'Day's working class story. And the fact that, you know, the workforce at his construction company is mostly Latino will connect with Latino voters. What it boiled down to is they think the campaign is positioned to not just do better with Hispanic voters, but actually win the majority of them, which would mm-hmm. be a huge shift for Republicans in a statewide race. Yeah. But it also sounds like their reasoning for that is more so, well, it it could happen and not necessarily they're pointing to a lot of data or surveys they're willing to disclose. So we'll see. But there is some precedent here. You know, some of the confidence, this whole conversation really is coming from the fact that Republicans in 2020 made big gains with Latino voters, not necessarily in Colorado, but in Florida and in parts of South Texas. Andy and Benta, you two have also been keeping an eye out on the contests in the state legislature. I'm guessing Latino voters are likely to be crucial in some of those races, right? Yeah. When we talk about the legislative races, the focus is really on just a handful of state Senate seats that Republicans want to flip so they can maybe take control of the chamber and have some actual power in the Capitol. And of those half dozen or so most crucial, most competitive races, three of them are districts with fairly large Latino populations. One is in Thornton, which is within this area that we've been discussing with the 8th Congressional District. And the others are in Colorado Springs and Pueblo. And all of them do have some interesting back and forth voting patterns that say they could be in play. Pueblo is the only one of those races that has a Latino candidate in the running. Mm. Um, That's Stephen Varela. He's a Republican. But interestingly, he's only been a Republican for two years. He has switched party affiliations back and forth over the years, but most recently Republican. And he says how he was treated by Democrats had a role in switching parties. And to me, that was like, okay, this is really cool because for the first time I'm at the table, not because I was a union president or because I'm checking a box that I'm Hispanic or because I'm a young Hispanic. It's more because, hey, you have a lot to offer. We should also point out that he's challenging Democratic incumbent Nick Heinrichsen, who's also been a member of both parties. So kind of a fun party switcheroo going down there in Pueblo. It's one thing to know that Latinos are one of Colorado's largest voting blocks. It's another to make your case person by person on not just why they should vote for a candidate, but why they should vote at all. And again, going to be complex because this is a group of people that have some commonalities but also are quite diverse and different among themselves. But one factor is the question of voter turnout, because data from past elections shows Latino voters have participated in elections at lower rates compared to non-Hispanic white voters. I looked a bit into this, and one part of it may just be the demographics. The Latino population in Colorado is, on average, a lot younger, like on the order of 10 years, than the non-Hispanic white population. And Andy, generally, especially in midterm elections and such, younger voters don't participate as much, right? Yeah, that's right. Younger voters tend to get fired up for the presidential years. And no matter who you're talking about, older people just tend to vote more. I will say it looks like Latino turnout has increased in recent elections even in recent midterms. But there's still this question of how do you convince people to not just have faith in the system, be interested in the system, but also to vote for them to vote, period. 
So, you know, that's something that actually comes up in the 8th Congressional District. It's the highest proportion of Latino voters, but it also has the fewest registered voters of any districts, meaning all the congressional districts' populations are the same Mm -hmm. because they have to be the same. But the registered voters in those districts, CD8 has the smallest number overall. And I talked a bit about this issue with Alex Sanchez. He's the head of Vosas Unidas de las Montañas. It's a Glenwood Springs-based nonprofit, and it seeks to politically engage Latinos, especially living in the central mountains. His organization was part of a survey of Latino voters in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the survey found that a lot of these voters are disillusioned about politics. They don't believe either political party is concerned about their community. I think this data... It should be a slap in the face to many of us who are in this business to say we need to do better. And it's the system that's the problem. And the data suggests that Latinos are not trustful of the political system. I've definitely heard some of those views echoed by people that I've talked to. um, And that could be a problem, particularly for Democrats. You know, we mentioned that Latinos have traditionally supported Democratic candidates. But I heard from plenty of people who feel like the party has taken their support for granted and hasn't done enough when it comes to getting people out who can speak Spanish or hold family-friendly events so that people can bring their kids and not have to worry about a babysitter. Sol Sandoval, who was a Democratic Latina candidate for Congress, she lost her primary, but she says the party needs to think beyond the typical voters that show up to a roundtable. So in order for everyone to be able to participate in these conversations, we need to make sure that we're not just catering to people who are retired, that we're not just catering to individuals, you know, who works at 8 to 5 because... There are tons of people, you know, that, you know, are working in kitchens that are housekeepers and they don't have that eight to five. It's the idea that, hey, parties are paying attention to us now that there's an election around mm-hmm. the corner kind of thing. And Alex Sanchez, who we just heard from earlier, he's aligned with progressives. And he thinks Democrats and Republicans have taken a somewhat transactional approach to Latino voters. When I, when I hear about a Latino not voting, you know, I don't blame that person for not participating. I blame the system that has yet to learn how to engage that person. And that person has every right to say, I don't see myself reflected in your platform. And you have never approached me and you have never sat down with me and you have never wanted to learn about who I am, what motivates me, uh, what keeps me up at night, and what are the solutions that myself and, and my family needs to be able to thrive. That goes right back to that Hispanic community center that you were talking about, Benta, you know, the one the Republicans opened in Thornton. We don't know if that's going to be permanent or not. And the Republican Party has faced that same criticism that Democrats have faced, that, you know, they only court Hispanic voters in the months leading up to an election. Yeah, exactly. And I was talking to Sanchez about that community center in Thornton. And he said, look, if Republicans just open this office a month or two before an election and then shut it down, that's just not a helpful approach. And I think that goes to concerns that voters across the spectrum have, which is, do politicians actually care about me or do they just want to get my vote come November? And if you can figure out how to make one community actually have faith in government and trust, uh, you're probably on your way to solving a lot bigger problems in the United States. So uh, best of luck, political operatives and candidates. It's the only time (laughs) you'll hear me say that. So as we wrap up our big points, Latina voters, not a monolith. Not a monolith. The Republican Party is trying to make inroads with the once reliable Democratic voters. The Democratic Party is trying to remind Latinos that they share many of the same values. And both parties have their eyes on how Latinos could really swing key races in Colorado, like the new 8th Congressional District 
and the Senate race. Caitlin Kim, Benta Berkland, and Andrew Kenny with Purplish, CPR's public affairs podcast. Follow this and all of the episodes leading up to Election Day everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to editors Chuck Murphy and Megan Verlee. Thanks as well to sound engineer Shane Ramsey. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.